0: It's Thursday, May 22nd, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Like Jean-Paul Sartre once said of God himself, if Red Lobster did not exist find a need to invent it. Red Lobster's parent company, Darden, selling Red Lobster, splitting it off from the other restaurants like Capital Grill and Olive Garden. Man, I do love the Red Lobster. I've eaten there maybe once in my life, but I love it. I love their confidence. I love the all-you-can-eat shrimp. I love the commercials where the shrimp just tumble in slow-mo from a fisherman's basket onto your plate. I love the fact that it's called the Red Lobster. Clear implication. Our food is cooked. I love the menu items. Walt's favorite shrimp. Who's Walt? Doesn't matter. Here's some shrimp. Coastal soup and grilled shrimp salad. Which coast? Who cares? How about a crunch fried fish sandwich? Wait, do you mean conch fried or fried conch? No, crunch fried. Shut up. Try the wood grilled chicken. Try the wood grilled taco. Try the wood grilled burger. What does that even mean? It means it's seafood, you idiot. Haven't you heard? At Red Lobster, we see seafood differently. At Red Lobster, we see food differently. Get it? Seafood, seafood. It's like at Dunkin' Donuts, donut. Order a crawler. Popeyes. We prove a chick can be delicious. At Subway, we'll sub way more than banana peppers for olives if that's your thing. Man, I gotta say, no other restaurant so perfectly embodies the phrase for a limited time at participating Red Lobsters. How did the parent company get only $2.1 billion for the sale? That's what activist investors are up in claws about. This, this Red Lobster, it should be a cash sea cow. Red Lobster. Oh, take it away, 70s jingle that defined my youth.
1: Everything we do is for the seafood lover in
0: you. Red Lobster for the seafood. Coming up in the show today, we'll start off with my talk with a deputy prime minister of Israel about the peace process. Maybe I should apologize for all this lobster talk. It's tray I know. And then we'll talk about playground signs. And finally, in the spiel, Mark Cuban's comments that were controversial or honest, or maybe neither of both. And now let's talk about Israel. Last month, peace talks between Israel and the Palestinian Authority collapsed. Palestinians blamed Israeli settlers who are living and building in land that's outside the original borders of modern-day Israel. The Israelis were outraged that the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, would form a so-called unity government with Hamas, which is on the U.S. list of terrorist organizations. Ophir Akunis is a member of the Israeli Knesset, a deputy prime minister, and a right-hand man to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. If anyone can explain the mindset of the Likud party, which is the conservative Israeli party in power. It's Mr. Akunis who is in town today to talk to groups in New York and New Jersey. The support of Americans and American Jews are of course very important to Israel and I did in fact talk to him about a recent development with J Street, a group of Americans who are pro-Israel and pro-peace by their own definition. Few Israelis would say they're anti-peace but the price they're willing to pay for peace varies widely. I started by asking Akunis to comment on the remarks of Martin Indy Dick, the US envoy who blamed the breakdown in talks on the settlers. So a few weeks ago the peace talks broke down Martin Indyk publicly blamed this on the settlements there was a lot of controversy about those statements. What do you think of him making the statements or and then I could also ask you you know why in your opinion did these peace talks break down?
2: Our policy is very is very clear Israel wants a peace a real peace We don't uh, want a piece of paper. It will be good for us. It will be good for our uh, neighbors. But you need to to tango. You can't do the peace with yourself. I think that one of the great lies of the Arab-Israeli conflict is that the settlements are uh, the obstacle for peace. Why? First of all, we know that until even no one settlement, there wasn't a peace so it's not <laughs> so this is not the reason that there is no peace. I think that the conflict is about the existence of Israel. The conflict is not about the settlements. This is not the problem.
0: How much do you have to empathize with the parties you 're negotiating against? Do you do that? Do you put them yourself in their place as a leader
2: i um I uh, think sometimes what i what What was our needs if I were a Palestinian? I think that the first need is good economy and establish uh, to establish new economy with an open more open market with a good relationship with israel i and uh, i don 't think that they are thinking how
0: I, I will improve my citizens life Let me read a quote, and this is uh, something that Index said yeah. uh, two weeks ago in public remarks that he knew were being taped Mm -hmm. one Palestinian negotiator this is Mm Indic talking one Palestinian negotiator told his Israeli counterparts in one of our sessions you just don't see us we are like ghosts to you Israelis don't seem to appreciate the highly negative impact on the Palestinian public of the IDF's demolition of Palestinian homes, or military operations in populated Palestinian towns that are supposed to be the sole responsibility of the Palestinian Authority. All right, what do you think of that statement, that you don't see us?
2: It's very, it's very funny that most of the world, and even negotiators, don't know 99% of the Palestinians living under a Palestinian regime. They are not seeing the IDF soldiers. Israel wants peace. The Palestinians don't want it, this is the truth.
0: I think the point of that quote was more, so yeah, that was the detail, but I think the point was that the, at least the Palestinian negotiator expressed to Indyk th- his perception that they don't think that the Israelis, or maybe some Israelis, the Israelis in charge of the peace process, yeah. recognize Palestinian suffering. And I know you could argue, here's why they're suffering and it's your fault, but just that acknowledgement seems, Indic was saying, to be a stumbling block.
2: Okay. Uh, first of all, I can't uh, argue with feelings. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is psychology, you know. Uh, I don't think that Israel is, and Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, the prime minister of Israel, and none of us in the Likud government or the cabinet, we are not seeing the Palestinians as ghosts. It's, it's just rude things to say. You know, we're seeing um, them as a human being, as our neighbors, and we want to live with them in peace, it, it it needs hard decisions, and not only for Israel, for the Palestinians also. And they just, you know, think that we are above them. We are not above the Palestinians. We are equal. They are human beings like the Israelis. We want to live with peace with them. And they are not ghosts, you know. None of them. They are cruel terrorists, of course. And we will fight them. And we will struggle them. But most of the Palestinians in, in Judea and Samaria, I think that they are, they are good people. They want to live with peace with us. They are not the problem. The leadership is the problem. And this is the problem of the Middle East.
0: U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, I think in a moment of frustration, he apologized, uh, made an analogy, which is an analogy that is well known, where he said if things don't change, I'm paraphrasing, that Israel could become an apartheid-like state. In America, this caused, especially among Republicans, a lot of ire. Um, some members of Congress called for his removal of the post of Secretary of State. What was your reaction to those comments?
2: I was very sorry, deeply sorry to hear this quote. And I was very happy to say that he was, that is apologized.
0: Was it taken in Israel as we can say that about ourselves, but an outsider shouldn't say that? Is that what the attitude was sort of?
2: Nobody can say it. I don't know. I don't remember that I, I, um, heard that I heard, Mr. Barak or Mr. Olmert, that both of them were prime ministers in Israel. I never tvo- I, I personally never vote for them, but they were elected as prime minister. And uh, you know that we have a great democracy. I don't think that uh, maybe they want to say that, that there is a dangerous to uh, binational state. And I, I have to tell you that this is another mistake. It will never be a binational state because the Israelis... Uh, Even the Arab Israelis vote for the Knesset, and the Palestinians vote for the Palestinian parliament. So I think that if someone thinks that Israel is an apartheid state, he's wrong. It's a great mistake, and I um, offer him to
0: stop it. Okay, my last question. There is a group in America um, is they call themselves pro-Israeli, pro-peace. They're called J Street. I don't know if you know about this group. And they were not allowed to be on a prominent council of uh, 50 pro-Jewish, pro-Israeli organizations. Is that proper? Do you think even people who, if they were in Israel, would not be voting for your party, would not be voting for Likud, should they be involved in positions of power if they have or positions of leadership if they have a lot of members?
2: You know, even though I don't think like J Street, of course, they, uh, if they want to say something about Israel and to, if, if they support Israel, it's, it's great. Uh, if they support Israel with criticism, it's, it's fine in our democracy and it's fine in the American democracy. I, I'm not part of this initiative uh, and I'm not part of the, the J Street ideology, but they have the right to exist. Yes,
0: exist. But what about be part of a very important decision making, uh, uh, decision making among American Jews? Like, you know, part of that presidential council should they yeah. be excluded because they're not pro-Israel enough?
2: If there will be, an, if there will, uh, J Street supporters will have enough power, they will be part of the leadership.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. You're saying that's how power works. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Ofir Kunis, Deputy Prime Minister of Israel. And now the gist will attempt to pioneer a new art form, dramatic sign readings. I came across this sign, this highly detailed sign, for a playground my boys were utilizing on Long Island, but perhaps utilizing illicitly. Here now, Dan Kois and Alison Benedict, co-hosts of the Slate podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting, with this dramatic sign reading. Children's playground.
1: Rules for a safe and fun time. Slides. Slides. Slides.
3: slides, no head first,
1: no two together,
3: no sliding on back,
1: no standing or climbing,
3: no kneeling or jumping,
1: no dangling arms or legs,
3: no sliding backwards,
1: no spinning around,
3: no sliding askew,
1: no dragging feet, swings. swings, swings, swings,
3: no standing on swings,
1: no swinging with more than one person at one time,
3: no swinging with one hand,
1: no swinging empty swings,
3: no twisting swings,
1: no jumping off while swinging,
3: no walking or standing close to a moving swing, play structures,
1: play structures, Play Play structures. structures. No. Climbing up or down if anyone's in the way. No. Bumping another climber. No. Jumping off the play structures. No. One hand climbing. No. Pushing or shoving or crowding.
3: No. Pulling or pushing. No. Doubling up. No. Standing near. No. Placing feet or hands near moving parts. No. Standing or sitting near handles or footrest.
1: Please report damage or inoperable equipment to the office. Use play equipment properly and only when dry.
0: Walk. Do
3: not push or shove.
1: Playground will be closed when surface is unsafe.
0: Allison, does uh, this list strike you as ridiculous?
1: Ridiculous. Why? Uh, How are the kids supposed to play? You're not allowed to spin. You're not allowed to slide. Askew? (laughs) What does that mean? Kids at playgrounds don't know what askew means.
3: Kids understand the general way playgrounds work through the oral tradition, not Mm -hmm. through signage. I find. Like, you know that that one kid, one town over, broke his leg sliding down a skew, So you don't do it, obviously, unless you want to, like, risk it.
0: And everyone thinks that they could swing so high that they wrap around the top bar. But that is not true.
3: That's
1: Uh, an urban legend. That (laughs) is
3: an urban legend. But I'm still sort of surprised it's not restricted on this list. Like, what if someone did it and there was a lawsuit and then they weren't protected? It would not have been hard to just add to this list no swinging so high that you swing all the way around and wrap around the
0: bar.
1: Also, no twisting swings. That's the best. I mean... Ugh, childhood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> when will they learn? Um, what is the purpose of this list, Dan? I'm going to guess quite a bit of it is the cover, the playground, owners or proprietors, S.
3: Uh, was this a city playground or a private playground? A, this, this, is
0: a, this was a playground run by uh, Rockville Center, the village, the incorporated village of Rockville Center.
3: So basically they have, I think, some in-house lawyer somewhere who read somewhere that you can get sued if you don't put up this sign. And he was like, well, let's just do everything. Just cover everything. Yeah, like He probably Googled playground danger and then uh, just listed every possible thing that he found on every list and was like, great, now we're covered. Now no one can ever sue us for any reason.
0: Yeah, or maybe there's uh, an internet or intranet group where all the lawyers for playgrounds share things that you shouldn't do. And they no one even thought of sliding skew until one guy said, you got to put sliding askew in there.
3: Were you aware that in 1943 in Minnesota, two kids stood on a swing together and one of them died?
1: They stood near a rocking device. What is near? If these are really going to be, I mean, we should be a little more specific.
3: Do not stand within 16 inches of a rocking device while being
0: rocked. Yes. Do not stand where the device can rock upon you. Right. Do not get rocked. Within the rock radius of said device. This, and that is almost like do not touch hot stove. I think even the youngest child knows not to do that. But it's or- not
1: like do not touch hot stove because touching a hot stove will really hurt you. <laughs> It'll burn you. But, like, having a rocking device – yeah like maybe hit you a little on, a, on the rock, you're going to be fine. I could,
0: see, I could see a little toddler getting brained. They have this grasshopper that's especially springy at the Rockville Center playground, so that one could be a danger. Do not. Just don't go near the grasshopper. <laughs> Kids are <laughs>
3: ejected from the grasshopper every day and land in the next county.
0: I think that if a child could read and comprehend a skew, they will know not to slide a
3: Well, skew. so that leads to another question, which, of course, is who is this actually targeted towards? Is it targeted towards parents to just make them feel better that the people who own this playground have thought about all the problems? Like, for example... You know, one of the things on here that would actually cause an injury is walking or standing close to a moving swing, right? When really little toddlers who don't know any better walk next to a big kid who's swinging really high in a swing, they get brained. Yeah. But those little toddlers can't read the sign. But if you are a parent of a little toddler who's ever been to a playground, your instant reaction when your kid even gets close to the swing is to swoop in and run away screaming. So, like, who is this sign actually for? Who's the target audience?
0: Right. It's people who can read English yet have never touched or raised or encountered a child or thought about the uh, dynamics of swinging. Non-parents without children who happen to be at a playground and can read. Dan, you've reported on playgrounds, and there are some beloved pieces of playground equipment that have kind of fallen by the wayside because of liability, right?
3: Oh, sure. Well, so monkey bars are a a much derided and much hated piece of playground equipment because they just break everyone's kids' arms. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that said, plenty of studies show that actually – structures like monkey bars increase children's adventuresome nature. They actually don't break that many arms, and you know it doesn't actually kill a kid to break his arm. You know? And so my daughter's arm was broken on the monkey bars, and I went on a big, like, man, the monkey bars kick. But then in talking to actual researchers in child development, I realized, yes, it sucks that my daughter's arm got broken, and it was a big pain in my neck and her arm, I guess, also. But in the long run, it's much better for my daughter and every other kid at that school to have some kind of vaguely dangerous, but not really all that dangerous piece of playground equipment that won't kill them but might injure one kid a year because it makes them all more adventurous and physically
0: adept. Yeah, being able to traverse the monkey bars is a... Sign that you know you've gotten you've achieved something, it's definitely something that kids really want to be able to do, and they're proud when they do it. And upper body strength is important. I mean, they have many, many virtues, the monkey bars. Mm. Plus, they you know occasionally break kids' arms, right? If you sacrifice one kid a year to the monkey bar gods, it's basically
3: fine. (laughs) It was a shame it was my kid,
1: Harper, Lyra,
3: right? Definitely one of my (laughs) kids is ideal, like that definitely gave the best karma to our monkey bars for the next year. But you know, the next year, some other kid broke an
0: arm, and it was fine. Allison Benedict, Dan Coyce do a lot of things at Slate, but for our purposes, they host a great podcast called Mom and Dad are Fighting. Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks. Thanks.
0: And please send us your pics or other documentation of ridiculous kid rules. Could be playgrounds, could be schools, stores. and call out for ridiculous signs aimed at kids. Tweet us at SlateGist. We at The Gist, with your help hope to become the watchdogs in this area of modern discourse. It's the spiel, and let's have an honest conversation about Honest conversations. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban, in an interview with Inc. magazine, copped to some bigotry on his own part. I'll be fair to Cuban. I want to play not only the words that are being quoted everywhere, but a lot of the lead up. It's a bit over a minute long.
4: You know, in this day and age, this country is, is, has really come a long way putting any type of bigotry behind us, regardless of who it's towards, whether it's, you know, the LGBT community whether it's xenophobia, you know, fear of people from other countries. We, we've come a long way, and with that progress comes a price where we're a lot more vigilant and we're a lot less tolerant of different views. And it's not necessarily easy for everybody to adopt or adapt or evolve. And this is the part that caused a conversation. If I see a black kid in a hoodie, and it's late at night, I'm walking to the other side of the street. And if on that side of the street, there's a guy that has tattoos all over his face, white guy, bald head, tattoos everywhere, I'm walking back to the other side of the street. And the list goes on of, of stereotypes that we all live up to and and are fearful of. I first heard of these quotes in an article titled, Mark
0: Cuban comments criticized as prejudiced. You mean the part where his explicit point was to confess to being prejudiced? Yeah, I guess you nailed Mark Cuban. And quickly, Cuban defenders were saying, wait, I thought we were supposed to have an honest conversation about race. How can you have an honest conversation about race if you shout down and shame Cuban for being honest? Having an honest conversation is laudable. Who can argue with an honest conversation? Well, actually, we all can and we all do. And we do so prudently a lot of the time. So honest conversations can go wrong in a bunch of ways. There's the subset of the honest conversation that's really just you complaining. That is a bad subset. Then there are the just being honest conversations that you hear about a lot on like reality TV shows. Just being honest. No, you're also being rude and self-centered. Being honest can also mean revealing disturbing thoughts. That's disturbing. And even if your honest conversations aren't in any of the aforementioned categories, the honest conversation can carry with it the whiff of the self-congratulatory. And that was, in part, what sports columnist Bomani Jones noted when he tweeted, I am intrigued for the people who want credit for admitting bad things. That's not intrinsically good. Jones also made this other excellent point on Dan Patrick's radio show.
1: When he says the kid with the hoodie versus the guy with a bunch of tattoos, the reason people are so frightened by tattoos is that there's a historical link that people put together with tattoos in jail and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody does that with hoodies. So if you're going to say, hey, I see a guy with tattoos, I walk across the street, then I see a kid in a hoodie, and I go across the street, too. Well, what the hell are you scared of with the kid in the hoodie? But
0: Jones was getting deluged by critics who accused him of calling Cuban a racist, which he hadn't. Those people were essentially disagreeing with Jones' part in the conversation about the honest conversation about race. Jones' critics, who are Cuban's defenders, wound up falling into two camps. You know what? I probably should have said at the start that you may want to diagram all these honest conversations. But anyway, some conversers about the honest conversation were saying that Cuban was right to converse, and while his prejudices are wrong, we should credit his honesty. But a lot of other Cubanistas were saying Cuban is honest and his prejudices are right. You do got across the street when you see a black kid in a hooded sweatshirt, which by my estimation is the second most popular form of apparel in the United States. The yeah, Mark Cuban's right, you got across the street crowd, either didn't understand what Cuban was saying or purposefully got it wrong. And that last subset was having a dishonest conversation about an honest conversation. Cuban himself engaged Bomani Jones on Twitter, but declined Jones' offer to take their conversation offline. So Jones was advocating having a private conversation about his quasi-condemnatory conversation about the honest, though maybe a bit more bigoted than Cuban initially realized conversation. In the end, I think Cuban was okay to admit some bigotry. I don't think he should be criticized for that. But as Bomani Jones said, maybe he shouldn't have compared the ubiquitous black kid in a hoodie to a skinhead. But you know what all this chatter, all these tweets, all these interviews give lie to? The notion that we as Americans aren't conversing about race. That is practically all we're doing. Is it an honest discussion? It's sprawling. It's full of some that's useful and a lot that's not. It's probably a lot more ignorant than insightful. But there's enough good stuff there that we should all probably keep conversing, in all honesty. And that's it for the show. Due to the handcrafted nature of producer Andrea Salenzi and the inherent size variations of seafood, nutritional content may vary. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andrea, how is that prepared?
1: I personally don't eat executive producers, Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, a very nice Parmesan-crusted Andy Bowers served over corkscrew pasta and fresh broccoli. It's, it's mm-hmm. very popular here. Okay. I'll try
0: that. You could subscribe to iTunes and give us a review. Also, Stitcher. There's Stitcher. We'll be in the Slate Daily podcast feed. Please do sign up for a daily email at slate.com slash gist email. Email us at thegist at slate.com. Guests who have special food sensitivities or dietary needs should not rely solely on this information. And thanks for listening. The flavor and aroma, the cracking of the shell. When you come into Red Lobster, every bite will tell. Everything we do is for the seafood
4: lover in you. Red Lobster for the seafood.